This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. Welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. And darling, I don't know why I go to extremes. <laughs> I'm Danielle Henderson. Um, I've had a- that goddamn song in my fucking head all morning, and I don't know why. I think it's because, like, when we were kids, Billy Joel was just always on, on the radio, on record, on whatever. Like, our parents just loved throwing us in a car, and that alcohol-soaked troubadour was just always there. This is so embarrassing, what I'm about to say, but when I heard that song for the first time as a child, I thought it went so hard. <laughs> well, because like, he's such- standing up. Yeah. In the video, he's standing up and playing the piano. That's some fucking Tori Amos shit there. He's wearing, like, black jeans and sunglasses. <laughs> and uh, he just doesn't know why he goes to extremes. Well, that's how I mean, I'm doing today. How are you doing? <laughs> yeah, I'm. Um, I'm. I'm good. I uh, things are a little cuckoo around here, but that's just because I've been doing a couple things. I don't know if I've talked about this, but I am teaching a class this semester. Yeah, because I'm unemployed still. Uh, I was like, why not uh, teach not a class? Anymore. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll tell you. It doesn't pay very much, right, teachers? Now I understand. But it's just a nice way for me to kind of get out of the house and chop it up about film with people. Because that's the thing is that, like, I think that's the hardest part about being unemployed is just feeling like I'm not, I don't know, engaging in my field, if that's the way to put it. Like, we do the podcast. And it honestly, the podcast has saved my life really over the past Aww. eight or nine months truly because it's just like it's just the thing that makes me happy it makes me feel like i'm showing up to something i feel accountable for something and i just i have so much fun doing it and yeah you know i don't know i just it, it really has been the thing that has really saved me Aww. well we're happy to be here for you and you have your sub stack everyone should subscribe to yes thank you i i, I started a sub stack recently because I just wanted to write more. And I remember I talked to you. I mean, honestly, anytime I write anything, I call you because I'm just like, you're the expert. <laughs> you're the one that told me not to quit when I was writing that book. Um, our friend and my agent and our agent, Christopher Schelling, would disagree with you, but <laughs> I appreciate it. No, it's true. I mean, it was you and the talisman. Those were the only two things that helped Aww. me get through that book. And I just think when when I was we were chatting about you know, like, what am I going to do kind of post-TCM? And I I said something to the effect of, I think I want to write more. And, you know, I just kind of, I don't know. I was just kind of exploring ideas about that. And then I checked in with you and I was like, what do you think about me starting a Substack? And you were like, dude, go for it. And it was really just 
it's given me this like discipline to write every week, yeah. which is this thing that I needed. I know you do. I know you do it very regularly. So um, now I just feel like the Substack has given me that. So beautiful Substack. This class. How is the how is the class going? Are we allowed to ask? It's fine. <laughs> it's, it's totally <laughs> fine. It's at a university that's it's up north. It's, Don't tell um, these people where you work. You know they'll come find you. Well, up north can mean so many things. <laughs> Do I mean it's in Virginia, Minneapolis? Do I mean <laughs> North Carolina? <laughs> but I but I have I drive a lot more now. Yeah, um, which is interesting. So I've been downloading other podcasts and kind of listening to listening to things. But um, yeah, it's it's going great. You know, I don't know. I'm just like I said. I'm just trying to stay nimble. You know, yeah. just to be like, take all the opportunities that I can. At some point, I'm going to have to find a full-time job with health insurance, which is really hard right now for yeah. the entertainment industry. And we're all, we all, we're all suffering from it right now as of this recording. So totally. We are in a but, shambles. Uh, oh, it's, it's bad. Like, and I keep reading articles about it. Like people will send me articles about like, is entertainment done? <laughs> I'm like, like, good lord! It's like sending me a, pot, a box of nails attached to a bomb. Jesus Christ! <laughs> it's like it's my whole fucking livelihood. What do you mean? Is it done? Well, and it's like that thing where I'm like, well, didn't Barbie just make a billion dollars? How come? Yeah. How is it done? How is everybody that I know not working? Exactly. And that's the thing. Entertainment isn't done. Entertainment has been siphoned into a horrible corral of the worst people greenlighting the worst things. Yeah. It's just become specialized, which it was never meant to be. And we let tech take over and tech had Mm. no fucking idea what they were doing with entertainment. And they fucked it. They fucked it. And the government needs to get involved. And that's all I'm going to say about that. You know, I had experience helping to build a streaming service once Mm -hmm. upon a time, okay? Mm -hmm. And it was a lot of work, by the way. I'm not talking just actual work of people who are having to, you know, input data into databases, build systems, this kind of shit. I'm talking about, like, the the task of trying to gather and buy content for these streaming services, okay? And I remember in my mind <laughs> thinking, this is a lot of work. And will it pay off? Doesn't seem like it's going to make a trillion kajillion dollars at the end of the day. I, I have been, and I don't want to rail on this too long, but like I sure. have been standing up in my guild meetings, the WGA union that I'm part of. I've been standing up in meetings for about six or seven years And they kind of, you know, they always talk about stuff, talk, 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 talk. And I always stand up and say, hey, when are we going to address streaming residuals? And I've been saying Mm -hmm. that for literally seven years. So the fact that they're doing it now, I'm like, great, but too fucking late because we have all seen this coming for years, for almost a decade. We've seen this coming. And now they're finally ready to do something about it. And they're lumping it in with all this other stuff. And I'm like, we have seen the writing on the wall. Like we have been getting shit residuals for streaming content for years. And the main thing that bothers me about it is that none of these streaming services are beholden to releasing 
their actual numbers. We have right. no idea how many people are watching, what they're watching, or when. And they are not at all under any obligation to tell us that. Residual checks for cable used to be enough for people to retire on, where they could count on getting those two checks a year, and it would literally be a salary for their life because the way that street that the way that residuals worked in cable were much more specific and based on the number of people, the syndication, like they had a better system. There's so many other things I could talk about, mini rooms, just the way that we're doing more work for less pay. And again, I, I'm, I'm a smart lady and I've got a great fucking business manager. I prepped for this fucking strike. And I, you yeah. know, we looked at my finances and she's like, you live in the country you hardly spend any money on anything except when you travel. Yeah. So she helped me save enough to ride it, ride this out for at least a year if I need to. Oh, gosh. So I feel Thank very God. lucky about that. Be but mm -hmm. that's just because I have a good business person. It's not because I make a shitload of money. <laughs> it's because mm -hmm. I have someone who make who helps me figure out what to do with my money. Right. But the whole system is fucked. And it's based on the fact that we're we're depending on these these producers, these studios, these streaming services to tell us the truth about who's watching our shit and they're not doing it. They're giving well, us the bare fucking minimum and hoping that we never caught on. And you yeah. can't tell me that a show on a streaming service that is the number one show for three months running and you're only going to get a residual check for $600 for an episode right. that you wrote. When normally, if that was on cable, you'd be getting a check for a couple hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> like, you right. cannot tell me that they're not being com intentionally obfuscating what is happening behind the scenes. So I think, all right, it's time. It is time. But since I've been saying this for so long, I'm exhausted. I'm fucking tired. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm glad we're doing it. But this is how they run this business from top to bottom. This is how they get rid of programmers. This is how they start leaning on things that are not people-oriented. Tech has fucked the entire entertainment industry, and it's time we fucking take it back. I'm really glad you talked about it from your perspective because I don't... I mean, a lot of people probably don't even know anybody in the Writers Guild. Maybe some people do. I know there's probably a lot of mm -hmm. Writers Guild people here that work at Exactly Right. So I don't know. I like hearing that perspective because yeah. I'm not in a guild. I work on the corporate entertainment side, which is just as bad. But it's it's really yeah. bad, like, for, for y'all. And I support what you're doing. I'm very much pro-labor. Oh, and you. I... I hope that things get resolved and I hope we can all go back to work because this is annoying as fuck. It's so fucking annoying, truly. And yeah. it's, yeah, I could rail on this for, for hours, but I will say my, my guild is, my union is great. I love being part of a union. We, re, we renegotiate every three years, but I think there's been so much, there's just been so much confusion and ill will out there about how like we're basically spoiled and we just want to get paid more for no reason and that's not at all what's happening. Like we are not, yeah. and especially if, if you're an entry-level writer, entry-level writers are super fucked because they are still building a career and they're kind of feel forced to take these horrible working conditions and run with it because that's how yeah. they're going to build their career. And a lot of entry-level writers are on food stamps and a lot of entry-level writers only get one job a year that's supposed to sustain them for the whole year and they get paid $30,000. And it's just like, 
that kind of shit where I feel like it's not, it's not, this is not the, in, the instance where we're just being spoiled babies. We have been working under really terrible, really terrible, terrible conditions, not like coal mine conditions, of course, but like terrible conditions in terms of good and bad faith. And we've yeah. watched tech just truly dismantle and destroy and bring their their mode of thinking in, which is let's get as much out of people as possible for as little as possible. And they have brought that attitude to our industry and made it impossible for people to earn a living wage is what they've done. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I've been in so many situations where I basically had to tell my my agent and manager who are the people that get jobs for me and I pay them for that. <laughs> But they're the people that get jobs for me, which is, again, something people I don't think understand. Basically, I have an entertainment lawyer, I have a business manager, I have an agent, I have a manager, and all four of them work together when I get a job. So my agent and manager bring the jobs to me. Um, I say yes or no. My lawyer works through the contract to make sure I'm not only going to get paid, but get paid in a timely fashion. Um, When I first started as a writer, a TV writer, I did not get my first paycheck for three months. And the show was almost over before I got my first paycheck because they just figured, Mm. oh, well, you already have money. I'm like, no, 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 no. I don't have any money. And I'm living in New York and L.A. and I'm stressed. And they did. So, you know, one of the negotiations we did over the past couple of years with the union was to make sure we got paid within the first two weeks. Like, Who has to fucking say that? Who has to say that to an entire business industry of like, hey, you should pay your people within two weeks of them starting to work. So it's that kind of shit where it's like, you know, so I have these four people that work with me. So because I have these four people who work with me and then my business manager, again, she makes sure that the paychecks come in. We look at my bank account together. She pays my taxes. She pays my um, fees because that's the other thing. In order for me to get jobs and have a viable career as a TV writer, I kind of have to have these four people in my corner. And that means that anything I get paid, you can wave goodbye to 50% of it Mm. because they all get a percentage and then I have to pay taxes. So whatever I'm earning, I'm actually earning half of what I'm earning. Yeah. That's just across the board if you have your own business, period. I mean, if you you don't have, if you're not a (laughs) W-2, take whatever you're making and just basically cut about at least 25%, if not more. Exactly. So, and then they get, you know, 10, 5, 10, 15% yeah. on top of that. So, which again, absolutely worth it for me to pay them. They are wonderful people who have actually made right. my career possible. But that's what I have to think about when people are offering me jobs. Because the other thing is, we're not all out here being famous writers. The rest of us work on a scale. And the yeah. scale for the guild is set So you earn a certain amount based on what your level is as a writer. And it's very rare that you get above and beyond that. So if you're, for example, a co-producer, you earn an amount of money that is set in stone by the guild. And it's supposed to be protective so that, you know, nobody's earning less than they're worth or what have you. But that is it. (laughs) Like there is a cap on what you can earn if you're not like Christopher fucking Nolan or something, you know? Right. So... We're all working within these these minimums and these this scale that has been set. And what they're trying to do is take, take that away. They don't want to pay us the minimums. And if they have to pay us the minimums, they are going to 
put fewer and fewer writers in the room so they don't have to pay as many people. Right. They're going to have mini rooms where they want you to write a full season of TV, which usually takes 20 to 40 weeks. They want you to write a full season of TV in 10 weeks. And they want you working 20 hours a day. And they want Mm. three writers to do that. They're not going to pay 10 writers. They're going to pay three writers to do that. So it's all this shit where it's like, okay. And again, I'm sorry that I've gone off on this for a while, but. No, it's all right. It's really, it's truly important to me that people see the fact that it's not just spoiled writers and spoiled actors looking for a paycheck. Stop looking at the most famous people in our ranks and look at the workers because the workers amongst us, like me, we are not out here making bank. We are out here earning minimums and trying to keep that amount so that we can fucking survive. Yeah. I mean, I think that's kind of the 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 thing about SAG too, is that it like there's a lot of people who are in SAG, but they don't even make enough money to have the insurance or the benefits of the guild, yep. really. Oh, yeah, that's the so, other thing. Like you have this is why a lot of entry-level writers also say yes to these shitty job situations, is because you have to earn a certain amount of money to qualify for your health insurance every year. Right. And if you don't earn it, you literally don't get health insurance. So you have yeah. to say yes to this shitty job where you're earning, you're in a mini room and you're working 20 hours a day and you're earning bare minimum because you want health insurance. Right. So yep. it's that, So when you look at, and again, I'm a little bit different because I've been doing this for a while. I'm at a different level. I've done development. And also I have a whole other career as a person who writes books. I have a whole other career as an author. I podcast, like I do other things to bridge that gap, sometimes because I want to, but also because I have to. Like, I i don't feel comfortable putting all of my eggs in the TV writing basket because I've seen how they treat us. So yeah. I can't earn a living solely on TV writing because I would never be able to earn a living. <laughs> so when you see me yeah. like, oh, well, she has a house and she goes on vacation. Yeah, I plan for that shit just like you do, just like everyone else does. But I don't have kids and a husband to put my money into. So I'm a little bit more fortunate that I can save a little bit more. But I'm still just a worker. Yeah. You know, we want to be artisans. We want to be craftspeople. We want to be able to focus and put all of our energy into something. And I know that in my experience as a showrunner, that's always been really important to me in terms of like building the rooms with humanity in mind, because I know that this is what people are going through because I'm going through it. So, you know, I want you to spend time with your kids. I want you to spend time on things that are important to you that make you feel like when you're here, you can actually work in good faith because you're not worried about 18 other things. So that's just personally, like I've never met another showrunner who thinks that way, but I just personally know that we want to be able to focus and put our energy into the thing we're doing. And that would be a lot easier if we were getting paid a wage that was commensurate with the work we were doing and the hours that were expected of us. And that's, you know, not just writing the show, but writers are on set through production and, That means when you're filming, you know, you want writers on set for their episode because sometimes you make changes or sometimes you have to double check things. And they've Mm -hmm. taken that away, too. A lot of people come up now who have been writing on TV shows that are deeply successful and they have literally never been on a set. And what that means, because they won't because studios and production won't pay for them to be on set. So what that means is you could be a world class writer with a ton of experience and a bunch of different shows and you are missing a key component that will help you rise through the ranks. Because if you're never on a set, you don't know how to become a showrunner. You don't know how it works to film the show. 
that you're writing. Mm-hmm. And that is crucial to you advancing in this business. So they've taken that away as well. So and oh, with you, and boy. in your in your situation, I think again, it's all tied together because you know we have this this industry that's now being run by one entity. So in your position, you're like, yeah, I wish I could have depended on one job. That's how I when I started in the '90s, I thought maybe you know this job could be my career forever for as long as I wanted it to be. Yeah. And now your job literally doesn't exist anymore. Film programming yeah. has been turned over to tech. So they have wiped out an entire career track. And they've done that not just for you, but across the fucking board. Everything that used to make studios run and networks run is now being controlled by tech. And they've wiped out the human element. Yeah, I mean, it is, it's crazy because when I you know, go out into job boards and look for programming jobs. A lot of times programming and content managing means something totally different than what I, I mean. I When I, I was a programming manager, right? I was a content manager, meaning I was curating, essentially. Right. Um, but now those things mean other things. Like a content manager could mean your, you know, running a social media campaign. A content manager means you're literally making TikToks for some brand. It's right. just so broad <laughs> right. and weird, but it's come it's come into that because of technology and the and the companies that are using those terms for other things. And so, yeah, I mean, I go into these job boards and I'm like, "Oh, here's a job for a programming manager." That was my title. But not, I'm qualified for none of it because it has nothing to do with what I've been doing, which I've been programming for television. Right. Programming films mm-hmm. for television. So it's just, it's very, it's very weird. I'm, I'm feeling dread. I have yeah. been this entire year. Like this entire year, I've been like, what is happening and then, of course, getting the kind of doom and gloom articles about how it's just getting worse. It's just getting worse every day. It doesn't seem like it's going to change. Yeah. And I, I, I'm i sitting here going, so do I sit here forever and wait this out? Or do I just try to just move on? You know, it's Yeah. And I'm, I'm fully a move on person. Like, I, yeah. I stay very nimble. <laughs> and I ain't waiting for nobody to show me the writing on the wall because I know what's coming. And yeah. I feel like... You know, I also have faith and confidence in the fact that I can just go waitress. I can go do anything. Like, I don't, yeah, I'm not exactly. beholden to living this life if it's not working. But I also just feel like there are too many people in our position now. We can't all go be waitresses. You know what I mean? Like, we can't all go teach. We can't all go do anything. Like, we can't all jump ship. And we shouldn't have to. And yeah. um yeah, so it feels like a, a realistic fight, but I I definitely am, I'm tired. I'm tired in my bones every day yeah. just trying to think of how I can survive and maybe TV. And truly, I have thought several times during this strike that maybe TV writing is not in my future anymore. Like maybe mm-hmm. it's just not the thing I was meant to be doing. I kind of stumbled into it anyway, but... Because I don't know how I'm going to go back to work for these fucking ghouls who say things like, we hope you lose your houses before we'll come back to negotiate with you. And who have no good faith in, who cut down trees so protesters don't have shade 
outside of Universal Studios who illegally cut down trees, P.S. Just mm-hmm. so that, like, just this vindictive bullshit. So I don't know if TV is the best place to tell the stories I want to tell anymore because I don't feel like we're working with people who understand or value or appreciate human stories. They want money. They want it fast. They want to turn every toy into a movie, every comic book into a movie. They're going for the cash grab and they're not as interested in telling the stories I want to tell. Yeah, I, um, yeah, I don't know. I'm just, just, (laughs) I hate to end it on this note, but it's just, I think it, this feels cathartic for both of us to talk yeah. about because I mean, we kind of joke that we're both unemployed right now, but it is like, Oh yeah, we actually are. And I don't know what's going to happen. And yeah, I, you know, thank for me, I, like I said, thank God for this podcast. Cause it gives me an opportunity to like, just chat about the thing that I love and, you know, be with other people who are really great. I mean, not just you, but Casey, our producer and the people that we work with, it's just like a good environment. And so, you know, I I hope that everything turns out okay. I hope that, like, things pick up soon. But if not, I think you and I specifically are really, um, we know how to survive. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So. We will always survive. And also, this is a good opportunity to remind people that they can support us. You know, we put out merch and we have things happening. And if you guys don't, support that stuff, then we can't keep doing it, which means we also might not be able to keep doing this. So like support us if you can. If you like what we're doing, you can write us a review. But truly, like if we put out merch and you can afford it, please buy it. Like we again, like we can't keep we can't sustain this podcast in the way that we would like to if you are not directly supporting us. Just support us if you can in any way you can. If you have money, buy merch. If you don't have any money, leave us a five-star review. Help us keep doing this thing that we actually really enjoy doing because everything's changing. Everything's changing and there's no guarantee that any part of entertainment, including podcasts, film, TV, publishing, like there's no guarantee that any of this will be sustainable without your direct support. So that's right. And um, on that note, should we just end? Should we not even talk about movies today? <laughs> like I'm bummed. <laughs> <laughs> My good guy, I need a nap. Listen, we have a really fun theme this week, despite we the first bit of uh, this <laughs> podcast. Um, We've sort of done this uh, topic before. Uh, if you listen to our previous episode, which was called Don't Fill Up on Bread, obviously a title that Danielle Henderson came up with. Uh, and she came up with the episode title for this one, too. Danielle, do you want to tell everybody what the theme is? Yes, our theme this week is I Wish This Popcorn Was a Burger, because we're talking about food movies. I don't know about you, but I cannot watch food movies without eating. Oh, yeah. Of course. Like, I feel insane when I'm watching them make all this delicious, beautiful food on screen, and I have nothing around me to snack on. Oh, I know. When I I watched your movie this week, which I've never seen before, this is the first time watched for me, it was lovely. We'll get into it, obviously, in just a Mm -hmm. second. But um, I was... I tr- I'm trying right now because I'm unemployed, but also for other reasons too. I'm trying not to use like 
food delivery services as much. Because when I lived in L.A., I used that shit all the time. Did you really? Oh, yeah. I used... Uber Eats, um, what is all the other stuff that out there? All those places that deliver you food, not Gold Belly, but um, DoorDash. Oh yeah, DoorDash, Uber Eats, Grubhub, any, uh, <laughs> Grubhub. Anybody that wanted to bring me some food, even though I lived in West Hollywood and could technically walk to a lot of places, I just was like, I'm too lazy. That is bonk. I mean, it's. I know that that's normal. I know that most people do that. I. Didn't. I have not you been. You didn't? A, Good for you. No. I've never really been a big food delivery person. When I lived in New York, um, I would get pizza delivered, but that's it. And that was yeah. only once in a while. And yeah. um, I don't know. I love cooking and yeah. I'm so cheap. Yeah. <laughs> and well, just, see, and I also love figuring out, like, if I want a black bean burger, I want, I want to figure out how to make it from scratch so that I always yeah. have that knowledge of how to do it. But it was all, also such a pain in the ass to get stuff delivered in LA because they're like, well, we can't park on the street and we can't find your fucking apartment and we can't get mm-hmm. in without being buzzed in. And it was just such a hassle that I just never really did it. Good, good for you because I probably have spent trillions of dollars. <laughs> The GDP on of a small country. <laughs> and all this, like, on the uh, the uh, upcharge for food delivery. I mean, it's so... I actually, like, told myself, if you don't stop ordering food all the time, you're going to literally <laughs> live inside of a gutter. Like, you're just going to be a gutter The The updated woman. old lady who lives in a shoe... Yeah. story <laughs> is the old lady who lives in a shoe because she could not stop getting... food delivered she went broke on grubhub but here's the thing so when i was watching your movie i was like damn i want some sushi and i like went on to a food delivery service and and realized it was going to cost like 75 dollars to have one sushi roll (laughs) and then i was like why am i trying to get raw fish put in a car driven around for about an hour and a half and then arriving at my door. This is the stupidest idea. But it was because your movie made everything look so goddamn delicious that I was being hypnotized by that. So I know. I feel you. I was it's so gorgeous. And I I'm also in a position now where I can't get food delivered. Like even though there are a couple of restaurants in the main part of town, they will not come out here to where I live. Oh wow. And they will yeah. flat out tell you that, like in the app. They're like, we ain't going past this point. And I'm like, all right, I got you. But Good. What I often do is when I'm at the grocery store, there's like a sushi counter at my grocery store and I'll pick up some rolls and they're and it's good. It's like really good stuff. However, mm-hmm. a few months ago, I'm parked at the grocery store facing the side of the building and I frequently saw the guy who makes the sushi just kind of like squatting down having a cigarette, you know, on his break. Well, this time I saw him and he was squatting down. And I'm like, oh, cool. He's having a cigarette. I'll say Hi. He was knuckle deep in his nose so far that I will never eat sushi there again. <laughs> like it was fucking disturbing how far his finger was up his nose. You mean you're about to get a booger roll? Is that what? Thank you. And I'm like, there's not enough gloves in the world to erase this from my fucking memory. No. So way. no more sushi for me unless I learn how to make it at home, which I have yet not yet done. But yeah. yeah, I was craving it the whole time I was watching this movie, knowing that there it would take. I mean, I'm, I'm gonna have to get it the next time I go into the city. 
Yeah. Well, that's that's the thing. I think both these movies this week really just kind of made me want to eat the food that they yes. were talking about. And uh, I'm so excited to talk about these movies. You're going first. I am going first. And I also have to say, watching your film was particularly painful because it was so gorgeous to watch her make those pies. Mm. And I'm not eating processed sugar right now. And I was like, fuck this. So both movies, I was like, fuck this. So that's where I wish this popcorn was a burger comes in for me. Absolutely. That's a a perfect name. So I'm going to go ahead and jump in. I'm so excited to hear what you think since you'd never seen this before. My film was released in 2011. It was directed by David Gelb. It is a documentary called Euro Dreams of Sushi. I fucking love this movie. I saw it when it came out. And this is this is a pre-Chef's Table documentary. So this beautiful way of filming food was not de rigueur at the time it came out. Mm-hmm. And I think it totally changed the game in a lot of ways. Because the way that the narrative unfolds in the midst of this beautiful imagery is just unparalleled. So I'm going to give you a one-sentence synopsis, and then we'll jump in. My one-sentence synopsis is, a man dedicates his life to perfecting the art of sushi in this complicated look at family, legacy, and desire. Excellent. So, our main subject of this documentary is a man named Yiro Ono, who is 85 years old, and he is an absolute perfectionist. He is very stern. He has the same routine every single day. He hates holidays because he can't work. He wears a little Kangle hat on the subway. And <laughs> he's he's really hard on himself, but he's super hard on everyone else. And he just so happens to run a three Michelin star restaurant in a Tokyo subway station. It has mm-hmm. 10 seats. <laughs> it has 10 <laughs> seats. You have to book one month in advance at the time of of this documentary coming out. Reservations are mandatory. They serve courses to you, sushi only. There are no appetizers. There's nothing else. You're not getting edamame. You're not getting a single fucking other thing. You're going to sit down. They're going to put some sushi in front of your face and you're going to leave. And it starts at about $200, again, the time of this filming. And... So we come into this film knowing that Yiro is what he calls a shokunin, which is someone who focuses on quality. Quality is key. They're not in it for the money or the fame. And he believes that simplicity leads to purity. So his sushi is gorgeous. It's simple. It looks amazing. And his whole ethos in life is you have to become... You have to dedicate your life to mastering your skill. Now, he has been doing this as the movie goes on. We find out that he has been doing this since he was about nine years old. He's been on his own since he was nine years old. His father had a drinking problem and died young. And his mom basically said, you have no home to come back to. Like, get up Mm. there and make it work. Um, He joined the military. He was in World War II. And he loves his job. He he at one point says, I haven't achieved perfection yet, but I'm a, I'm ecstatic all day. So he will not quit his job ever. He's 85 years old. He's still overseeing everything. And the only problem with this <laughs> is that he has 
two sons who he has also insisted also work in this restaurant and dedicate their life to this now family craft and family legacy. So his older son, Yoshikazo, thought Jiro would retire years ago. He's like, look, when that man had a heart attack at the fish market at 70 years old, I thought he was done. Mm-hmm. But he came back to work. Like, he has been waiting for this man to retire forever. And we're also going to get into the the fish market. The um, It's called the Tsukiji, the Tsukiji fish market. And all the vendors are experts and they save the, save the best fish for Euro. So we kind of get into the, the whole process from start to finish of how the fish are, you know, caught and who's buying them. And it's just this really interesting, complicated system where everyone is an expert, everyone is an artist, from even picking out the fish to making the actual sushi. So Yoshikazo was like, I'm supposed to take over this restaurant. I'm an old man now. Like, he has a receding hairline, and he's nearing retirement himself, and he has not yet taken over this restaurant. He also has a younger brother, Takashi. Now, Takashi runs his own location in um, Ropongi Hills, and it's Kind of the way it's pre- it's it's pre- presented to us is that it's a mirror image of the sushi bar in the Tokyo <laughs> subway station that his dad runs because his dad mm-hmm. is left-handed and he's not. So he has this mirror image restaurant and there's no rivalry. You would think there'd be a rivalry between the brothers, but there's not because Takashi knew that he would never inherit the restaurant. So he's learned and perfected this skill, but he would never inherit the restaurant that made it famous. And they both wanted to go to college, but Yiro said no. He's like, look, I let them finish. I let them finish high school. But then it was time to get involved in this fucking sushi enterprise. Um, That's right. <laughs> so they've both kind of been co-opted into this life by a sense of of duty. And it's a really intense life. Like an apprenticeship lasts for 10 years. Uh, we meet one of the current apprentices, Nakazawa, who had to make 200 egg sushi rolls before he felt like he got one right. Mm. And he burst into tears when he did get it right. And then we wow. also meet like this um, this former apprentice, uh, Mizutani, who thinks that Yoshi should take over. Um, but then we're t- you know, there's also a restaurant reviewer in the film who's like, yeah, but Yoshi's never going to surpass Yiro. So when Yiro dies, the customers are going to leave. And Yoshi feels pressure to like continue this legacy, even though he knows he'll never measure up to his dad. And there's like this historic sense of obligation that comes through at one point in the film when Yiro goes back to his hometown. And it's so cute because he meets with all of his friends and they're all so old and cute. But then he goes to his parents' graves and he's like, I don't know why I come here. They didn't take care of me. Mm. So it's like this really poignant incredibly complicated but beautiful film about again like this this dedication this this obligation almost this historic obligation to family legacy and what does it mean to be a family and continue in a craft and yoshi is amazing at what he does but he's not going to get his due in this lifetime because of who his father is and because of what his father has built and at one point in the film, there's kind of this incredible reveal, which uh, weirdly I don't mind spoiling for you um, because it's really <laughs> crucial to, <laughs> to the film itself. Do it. But at one point, 
the reviewer that is in the film says, you know, Yoshi, or, or sorry, Yiro is this Guinness world record holder. He's the first person to get three Michelin stars off right out of the gate. Like usually you get one at a time. He got three instantly. Um, so he's this incredible man who's like beaten all the odds. And at one point the reviewer says, you know, I asked the people at Michelin if Yiro was the one who made the sushi for them when they came in because they come in multiple times. And every single time it was Yoshi who made the, the sushi. Ooh, yeah. So Yoshi actually earned the Michelin stars. Not Yiro, technically. Yiro earned it on a technicality because it's his restaurant, but he did not cook for any of these people. And the cooking is incredibly intense and complicated. Like you're watching, it's simple, but the way that they're like caressing the rice and picking the fish and like, oh, they'll, they'll taste everything. And that's kind of Yiro's role is like he tastes everything. And he's like, no, this needs to marinate a little bit more in the vinegar. But it's done to such a perfectionist point that when they finally like lay the fish on top of the rice and kind of coat it with a glaze or a little sauce, a little soy sauce or something, it just looks like a work of fucking art. And they just put it on these little rectangular black stones, like these black stone plates. And just like whatever they put in front of you, you got to eat it. And <laughs> I just think it's like, it's such an incredible mix of fine dining elegance with simplicity, with passion, with dedication. And it's all tied up in the fact that this man, Yoshi, who did not even want to do this, learned this craft to such a point, such a perfectionist point that his father insisted he reach, that he actually gained the restaurant three Michelin stars first outing and will never get the respect or recognition that he deserves for that. It's fucking fascinating. And just as an aside, in 2020, they actually lost the Michelin stars because Michelin decided that the restaurant is not accessible to the public and they like to promote restaurants that are accessible to the public. And Yiro got to say, he's still alive, he's in his 90s, but he got to such um, such a point of popularity that like you basically couldn't get a reservation unless you were Barack Obama. Like if you were yeah. President Obama, you can get a reservation. Or if you were like a famous soccer star, you can get a reservation. But if you were just a dude walking in and off the street, that one month reservation went out the window. Like he got so mm. popular. And this is, again, a 10 seat restaurant in a train station underground where they are like making they're fucking prepping the wraps like the eel, the um, seaweed wraps in the hallway over an open flame. Yeah. <laughs> and that restaurant, you could not get a reservation for unless you were super famous. So they took away the stars. They're like, well, nobody can go there. So we're not going to recommend that they try. Okay. I want to know your thoughts on that personally. <laughs> I think it's pure bullshit because, and this is the thing, like, I think I had to read about and try to understand the Michelin star system for this. And I think yeah. that the way it developed was literally from the Michelin tire people because they were trying to get people to drive to different places to eat. So I yeah. get that. But it has now reached this point of such, where it's, it's such, it has set such a standard for purely judging the elegance and deliciousness of the food. It's no, no longer about traveling to it. Mm -hmm. Now they're literally just rating food. So I feel like if you're just rating food, 
give this man his stars. He's in his fucking 90s. Like, let him have his fucking stars. <laughs> like, you can't yeah. take away the legacy of what he's done simply because he's so good at what he does that people can't get in anymore. I know. And it's like, I'm of two minds about it. Because as much as I'm like, yo, Euro deserves those stars. I mean, look at what, look at the craftsmanship, the artistry, like all this stuff. I also get a little, a little cranky about not being able to ever eat there. Ever. Yeah. Like, I'm, look, I, I think at the end of the day, I, you know, I, I have this, thing about what would I do to actually eat somewhere? Like, if it's going to make me wait in line for four hours, no. no. It's a no. You know? But if so, I have to wait four months for a reservation and I'm planning a trip and I know I'm going there, I'll make that reservation. Sure. That I think in this scenario, you know, it is probably worth taking an actual trip to the other side of the world. <laughs> just to eat at this place, right? And that's why the Michelin star system goes to three or whatever is because they're saying, like, to you, this is worth an actual journey. Right. Like, it's worth it. But I'm just, I always get a little like, okay, well, I gotta go through all these hoops to eat at this place. Like, do I want to go through the hoops? Do I want to do this thing? But listen, in the case of this, I was about to have shitty sushi delivered to my house (laughs) for $75 that I was, was probably going to give me, you know, food poisoning. So I was about to have a know. fucking booger roll. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so why not book a trip four months in advance to be able to eat the <laughs> best of it? The best of the best, right? Right. But I agree. Like, I, I'm not fussy. I don't like being fussy about food. I like good food, but yeah. I am not usually the person who's like, oh, I'm in San Francisco, so I have to go to French Laundry. Like, I don't give a shit. Give me a good burrito and I'm, I'm fine. But there is something about the way that they created the hype. That's the other thing. They gave him three fucking stars off the bat. They created the hype that made it impossible for people yeah. to eat there. Yeah. Also, when I was doing research, because I was like, what is Michelin? How did this start? I had literally no idea it was French. I thought Michelin was from Michigan or something. <laughs> like, I just was like, oh, they're like an American tire company from Mi- Michigan. And they called it Michelin because they're trying to be funny. And then they put really? this, like, rinky-dink guide to put in people's glove compartments. And then they just started handing out stars to fancy places. no. This is like a whole thing. I went on the Wikipedia and I was like, oh, it's from France. Oh, they've been around for over 100 years. Oh, it's like a prestigious thing. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I love this waterfall of discovery. I mean, I'm stupid. I've said this many times, but I'm just saying that I was like... Nobody knows about the Michelin star system unless you're actually in the fucking restaurant business and you're trying to get one. Right, because I was like, in this moment, in this moment where they were trying to take away stars, I was like, who the fuck do they think they are? (laughs) This like podunk Michigan company? And I'm like, oh, actually, it's like a other, it's like a thing that... (laughs) <laughs> You're like, who the fuck does Michigan have the goddamn nerve to assault this aging fucking elderly man in Tokyo 
who has been on his own for since he was nine years old and went through a goddamn war. There was one point where the kids were talking about how when Ira was first starting and like perfecting his craft, uh-huh. they were so poor that they couldn't even buy a can of Coke. And when yes. they finally oh. bought one, they sh- he like Yoshi said he shook it up because he thought all the flavor was in the bottom, and then it exploded all over. <laughs> I know. Was so bad. It was that part was so cute because first of all, I watched this with my mom because my mom was in town, and um, <laughs> we watched the documentary together. And when they showed that picture of the two of them as like little kids, like yeah. with their arms around each other, we both squealed. We were oh. like, oh. They're so cute. Like, oh. They are. They're such, they're such, they're clearly so close as brothers. And again, there's yeah. none of that rivalry that you expect. They're both yeah. just kind of like, will our dad fucking retire or not? Like, if, if we've been, if this is the life that we've been given, we want to be able to live it to the fullest in our, on our own mm-hmm. terms. But we can't do that until our dad gets out of the fucking kitchen. And he never will. Yeah. It's like so sweet to see them still have a closeness and they're, you know, see them laughing and talking together um, and having each other because he could not have been an easy person to grow up with. And he even admits that at one point, he's like, I wasn't a great dad when they were kids because I wasn't there. I was trying to become a sushi master. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh my gosh. What did you the think sense. of this overall though? Like with you and your mom, like, did you like it? Like, cause had, oh. has she never seen it either? No. And my mom is real crunk about fish. Let me tell you, she, uh, this must be an Asian thing, but it's like the quality of fish is very important to her. Like she won't get fish pretty much anywhere that's not near, near the water. Like she's not real, real, real particular about Mm -hmm. it. And the entire time she was like, look at this fish. I mean, this is like the best fish you could ever, ever see. And I, (laughs) Not for nothing. My favorite part of this, because I the thing I love about this documentary is that it is kind of like a very intense look at just this business, this like, not mm. just the restaurant business, but sort of the businesses that exist, you know, right around it. Yeah. And I became obsessed with the fish market and I loved um, the tuna dealer guy who, oh my God, the tuna dealer guy called himself anti-establishment. <laughs> and I was like, I want to be an anti-establishment tuna dealer. Fuck <laughs> entertainment. I'm going to go into this world and just be like a punk rock anti-establishment guy that buys tuna with his flashlight, like the flashlight thing, oh, I was yeah. like, "Holy shit, that's fascinating!" And he is such—he is such a picky bitch. Yeah, he would look at someone's fish and tell them to their face, "This is crap." Yeah, like he and he's smoking a cigarette the whole time. There's nothing I love more than when someone who has built their life around tasting food is a heavy smoker. <laughs> I fucking <laughs> love it so much because I'm like, imagine what your palate would be if you did not chain smoke all day. Yeah. But he's like oh, smoking over the fish. He's like, here's what I think of your fucking fish. I'm going to ash right on it. I don't give a fuck. Well, and then they had that kind of what it was kind of like an auction of the fish auction, which mm-hmm. was super interesting. And um, I don't know, that whole part of the documentary was my favorite because I just was like, I want to go to a tuna auction and hang with these dudes with their flashlights, looking in, put, peeling back the belly parts and being like, what's it What's it looking like in there? 
am I fucking with this thing or not today? Because he was like, oh, the guy, the tuna dealer was like, if I don't like the first one, it's a wrap. I'm like, exactly. What? Oh, yeah, he's out. His whole day is fucking done. He's like, you better bring me that <laughs> best fish right away or I'm not even fucking with you for the rest of the day. <laughs> it's so great. It's so great. And, yeah. I, oh, I, I love the yeah. octopus guy. Like when the, the when oh, we yeah. bought the octopus and the guy kind of takes it out of the bag and it starts crawling up his arm and he's just kind of yeah. putting it in this bag for Yoshi. Because Yoshi, P.S., rides his bike to the fish market every single day to pick the fish yeah. for the restaurant. So he goes and he's like talking to this octopus guy and he's like, yeah, you know, like I saved the best one for you and these are a good size. And then Yoshi's talking about it. He's like, yeah, like I bought this today, but it's going to marinate. It's going to have to marinate for like 48 hours. And it's going to, ha- we're going to have to prep it. And we're going to have to taste it. We're going to have to like, like he, it's just the forethought of what you can do when you get the best quality ingredients is amazing to me. But I just, I, I loved it. Yeah, I know. Euro's like, Oh, back in back when I was a younger guy, I would just massage the octopus for 30 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Can you believe that? Now we massage them for at least 45 minutes. And I'm like, oh, damn, they got to massage an octopus. And of course, <laughs> I look at my mom and she's like, yeah, you yes. have to massage an octopus that long or else it's going to be as as rubbery as the Michelin tires, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> and I was like, oh, I guess it didn't occur to me. I learned a lot, actually, when I watched this. That's what yeah. I love about your movie. Sometimes I have to go down these roads on the internet to find out that I don't know shit. And again, <laughs> you're not a Shokinen. Like, we're not Shokinens. <laughs> I might be able to roll up some rice, but it's not going to be the best thing you've ever tasted in your fucking life. It's going to be passable as sushi. But yeah. these are people who like dedicate, like to to know the difference between massaging for thirty minutes to fifty minutes is a skill that was developed over so much time. Yeah, and it's beautiful to watch. Like it's truly beautiful. And again, this is pre Chef's Table, which is I love. Oh my god, there's a Chef's Table episode with a guy who runs a restaurant with his family, and he has some kind of like laryngitis, like laryngeal issue. So he whispers, like he talks in a whisper. I don't think food shows are supposed to make you horny. But like this dude is so <laughs> fucking hot. And he's like whispering to the dirt and he's speaking like, blah, 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 blah. and he's like whispering to his fucking food. And I'm like, this is very hot and it should not be. But, like, wow. that's what Chef's Table does. There's another one. Oh, my God. There's another one with Alex. What's his face in Brazil? And he's like, yeah, I'm a fucking chef, but I'm also an environmentalist. So he's, like, jumping into the jungle to, like, get a certain mushroom and save the trees while he's there. Like, it is. I can't watch Chef's Table. It's too hot. But <laughs> I think. I got to watch it. I haven't seen it. So. Oh, my God. I'm sending you a list of episodes to watch immediately. I think Euro Dreams of Sushi walks so Chef's Table could run, could fly. Yeah. And they brought a level of horniness that was not needed because the food was also already a horny endeavor. But it's, I don't know. I just, I think I really just appreciate, I appreciate documentaries like this. I appreciate movies like this because I think that especially in America or in food culture right now, not enough people there are too many people focusing on the kind of porny aspects of it and Mm -hmm. being very rigid and shitty and elitist about food and i kind of appreciate anything that kind of focuses on the fact that like food can be simple and delicious and everyone should have it 
because I don't like it when people are like, well, yeah, yeah, you can eat here if you have $700 for this cheese. Like, fuck off. I don't care. <laughs> like, it's, it's I, I don't care about that shit. So I like the simplicity of it. I like the dedication. The family dynamics are interesting. I just think it's, it's a beautiful fucking documentary. Yeah, I, I loved it too. And maybe one day I'll be able to eat there. Look, we we will always have Ropangi Hills. Takashi's yeah. always got us. <laughs> I'll go there. I'm I'm okay with it. I'm like, if it's in the family, yeah. that's fine. You know, I'll show up to Yoshi's t- house and be like, what's up? Roll me up a roll. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I it's such a lovely doc. I'm so glad I finally got to watch it because of you. It fits the theme absolutely perfectly. And as um, does your yeah. movie. As does your movie. Oh my God. I um I have not seen this movie since it came out, and I have so much to say. But um my movie for the theme, I wish this popcorn was a burger, is a movie from 2007. It was written and directed by Adrian Shelley. And it's called Waitress. I don't care if she is a pie genius. I wouldn't trade places with her. So, I first heard of the director of Waitress, Adrian Shelley, through her acting, right? Specifically mm-hmm. in the movies of Hal Hartley, the independent director. For me, Hal Hartley movies were essential in my 20s, especially if you haven't heard of them. He was, and is, he's still around. He made these movies that were kind of these like romantic comedies for smart people. This is maybe the best way to put it. Um, (laughs) Primarily in the late 80s and 90s. I don't know if you really need a reference. He kind of reminds me of like a male Long Island version of Nicole Holofen Center or something, right? Just that kind of tempo of film. <laughs> he he he's best known for I think he, this movie called Henry Fool, which starred James Urbaniak and Parker Posey, and he tended to use a lot of the same actors in his films like Parker Posey, Edie Falco, and Martin Donovan, who I just love. Mm-hmm. To me, Martin Donovan is and was kind of like the quintessential Hal Hartley it boy. Yeah. Kind of like, wouldn't you say, I I would say, I think Martin Donovan kind of embodies that kind of Hal Hartley character. Um, He's kind of like Chris Eichmann in the Whit Stillman movies, just kind Mm -hmm. of his go-to dude. And Martin Donovan was in a movie with Adrian Shelley that I really love called Trust, Hal Hartley film. And then she was in a movie called The Unbelievable Truth, which is also really great. And by the way, if you have the Criterion channel, by chance, Trust and The Unbelievable Truth are both on there. As as of this recording, they're streaming as part of this Hal Hartley retrospective on the Criterion channel, which is cool. There's four films in total. And it's kind of cool because Hal Hartley is kind of notorious for distributing his own films. So, you know, I'm hoping that now that they're on the Criterion channel, more people will kind of open up to them and discover them, hopefully, like a new generation, perhaps. But um, Adrian Shelley is is wonderful to me. Like, she's a real 
indie film queen. She has this really cute, quirky energy to her. This fiery red hair and, I don't know, just really adorable. And the coolest thing is that she also directed films while she was acting in both TV and film all throughout the 90s and early 2000s. And she made short films, she made some feature-length films, and then she wrote the script for Waitress while she was pregnant with her daughter, Sophie. And when I saw this movie in 2007, when it came out, I mean, it felt like her stamp was kind of all over it. She did the costumes and the sets, you know, obviously wrote and directed it. Uh, She's acting in the film. She plays Dawn, who is one of the waitresses at the diner. So when Waitress wrapped back in 2006... I believe. Uh, And it was about to make the rounds at, you know, Sundance and kind of the film festival circuit. Adrienne Shelley was tragically found dead by her husband in the bathroom of her office in New York City, where she was hanging from a shower rod. And initially, it was labeled a suicide. But her husband insisted that it just couldn't have been. She had a young daughter, her movie was coming out, and he felt like that the suicide thing just didn't add up. And he persuaded the police to open an investigation where they eventually discovered that Shelley had essentially walked into an attempted robbery of her office. And the perpetrator was a 19-year-old Ecuadorian man who was working construction in the building, And over time, he eventually confessed that he had panicked and strangled her and then hung her body in the bathroom to make it look like she had died by suicide. Mm. And she was only 40 years old. And it's just such a tragic story. It's, like, really hard for me to think about. Um, Truly. Yeah. And um, I I just keep thinking, like, how many other movies she could have made if she had lived. And it's just extremely sad to me. That's that's the thing that hits me when I was watching this this time as well, is the writing in this film is so incredibly good. It's so fast. It's witty. It's like nothing is left on the bone. Like she was such an incredible writer and director. And we really, truly lost something in her murder. Like, we really lost somebody who, again, who knows what could have, what she could have done, but to to have her have been murdered when she was on the cusp of being in her prime, not just in her professional life, but in her personal life, it's just, it's tragic all around. And I'm, I'm actually really proud of her husband for being so persistent um, mm-hmm. because NYPD did not want to investigate. They're like, well, she's hanging from the shower rod at the suicide. And he's like, will you look at the fucking facts? And I think that when I was reading about it, one of the things that that stood out was when they finally did investigate is there was a full footprint in the dust, like surrounding the body. And it's like, how do you miss like, oh, just it, fucking upsetting. But I'm, yeah, I'm just, I, my heart goes out to her family and, you know, to her husband, to her daughter, to everyone who loved her. And it's just, we really lost something. We really lost something with, with her. Yeah. The, the This whole crime has been written about a lot. So if you, if you just go on the internet, you can find a lot of things about it. 
obviously I, I would like to go in more detail, but I just feel like we're, we don't really have a lot of time. There's a lot, a lot happened throughout the course of sort of like right after it happened and then up and even till a few years ago, but you're right about her husband, her husband after her death, um, created the Adrian Shelley foundation, which gives scholarships and grants and other funds to women filmmakers. And what I thought was really interesting is that two of the two of the recipients from this award over the years include women who would go on to win Oscars mm-hmm. for their films. And one of them was Chloe Zhao, who won Best Director for Nomadland in 2020. And she was the first woman of color to win for Best Director. So I just think that so so much good came out of that tragic experience with this foundation. And, you know, it's just a really good way to honor her legacy. And, yeah. um, yeah. There's also a documentary about, on HBO, um, about her death. Her husband produced it and he actually talks with the person who killed her. Yeah. That, um, I was, I was unsure if I, if I was like emotionally ready to watch that. Yeah. Um, I know it's there and I probably will at some point do it, but yeah, I mean, it just, it's a very, very heavy story. And, um, at at any rate, um, there's a lot of, a lot out there if you want to look into it. So I'll do a one sentence synopsis of Waitress. A woman working as a waitress in a small town diner who dreams of escaping her abusive marriage finds out that she's pregnant. So, the lead of this film is named Jenna. She's played by Carrie Russell. I think you know who she is. Jenna is a waitress who is working at this diner named Joe's Pie Diner, which is located in a small town somewhere in the South. I I thought it might be maybe Mississippi or Louisiana or something. Just And the only reason why I thought this is because there's this brief shot of one of the characters reading a newspaper, and it was the newspaper was like the blank Picayune. Yeah. Which I feel like is only a Southern thing. I don't know. Yeah, Could totally. about that. So it, de- it, de- it definitely takes place in the South. Now, I will say to that end that I feel like Carrie Russell has a mostly believable Southern accent. Yeah, it didn't phase me at all. <laughs> yeah. I will say that Jeremy Sisto does not have a believable Southern at accent. All. At all. At all. I, I always notice that in films because, hey, I'm from the South. I, I notice these things. But um, I wanted to ask, I have never seen a pie diner. Have you? Have you ever been to a pie diner? Yeah. On road trips. Is that a thing? Yeah. small In smaller okay. towns, yeah. In smaller towns, it's okay. usually... And it's usually like a, a diner. Like, I've been to probably two or three, and it's like a diner, a proper diner, but they specialize in, like, a daily pie or something like that. Yeah. So. Well... There's House of Pies in L.A. Yeah. But I wasn't sure if that meant, like, I wasn't sure if that was an actual pie diner where they only served pie. Well, they didn't only serve pie in the movie either. Okay. Because, you know, in, when Andy Griffith ordered, he ordered, like, a full meal. Okay. So I think it's more of, like, if pie is the focus, like, we have good pies here, that's kind of what my idea of a pie diner is. Okay. So I think, I I think House of order- Pies would qualify. Okay, I guess he did order tomatoes. I guess I I thought he ordered only pie, but I could be wrong. Okay, well now I want to go to a pie diner like that only serves pies, and everything on the menu is a pie, even the drinks. 
I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> the drinks come with a crust around the top of the cup. <laughs> it's baked in like a cup, and the cup is a crust. Come on, people. Let's make some money if we, if that doesn't exist yet. Um, so Jenna works with these two co-workers who are played by Cheryl Hines and Adrian Shelley. And they're all very good friends. They're all very supportive. It kind of has this like Alice type of vibe to it. It's very cute. But so Jenna is, she just happens to be really, really talented at making amazing pies, right? And people all over town love her pies. You also find out that Jenna's married to a real piece of shit named Earl, who is mm. played by Jeremy Sisto, as I mentioned. He's like, and, again, just like William Fickner, I feel like he has a face that will he will always play the creep or the shithead. I was thinking that too. I was like, God, he's such, he plays a lot of shitty men. And he's great at it. So that's that's great for him. <laughs> I hope he's not that in real life. Um, I doubt it. I think he's probably a sweetheart in real life, but he just has one of those faces and he's so good at it because he does that glare. He's got a really, like a 10-yard stare that's really cruel. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing is that Earl essentially controls Jenna's entire life and is forces her to kind of tend to him 24 hours a day, which is so obnoxious. And he makes her give him all the money that she makes at the diner, which is awful. And not for nothing, but he's the kind of guy who honks his car horn over and over again when there are people around. And I'm like, that is maybe one of the most psycho things you could ever do as a person. Nothing raises my hackles more. God, it's just so aggressively fucked up. And I'm like, okay, yep. I know all I need to know about him. But He's again, like fucking over and over. What a beautiful detail to put in a script to describe a character. Absolutely. Oh, definitely. Definitely, definitely. And listen, Jenna hates his guts too. She <laughs> loathes having sex with him and she doesn't even want to be around him. Her dream, her ultimate dream is that she wants to go to this pie contest out of town where she can win $25,000, which she would love to put towards leaving his ass and starting a new life. But of Mm -hmm. course he won't let her. She doesn't have a car and he controls her life. So that's the situation for Jenna. And of course, all of this stuff converges into basically the absolute worst case scenario for her, which is that she finds out that she's pregnant Mm. with his baby. And what's interesting about this is that, you know, she, I mean, obviously she's not happy about being pregnant. And I remember seeing this movie in 2007 and I was just like, wow, this is kind of bold, I think, for there to be a movie where a pregnant woman has this steady inner dialogue for pretty much the entire film about hating the fact that she's pregnant and how she doesn't want to deal with this thing that's living inside of her. I mean, I feel like, Mm -hmm. obviously, you don't really see that perspective a lot. So... No. But some people don't want to be pregnant. Some people don't want to have kids. And I don't know. I just felt like, in a way, I mean, to see this perspective in a film, in a character, was pretty notable and fresh. So... Well, um, it's, it's also the circumstances by which she got pregnant, where she keeps saying, like, oh, my God, it had to have been that night that he got me drunk. And, like, she's right. just – the circumstances of her life are more the reason why she doesn't want to be pregnant. And I think that's also important to focus on. Like, she's – yeah, she isn't tied to this baby. She doesn't have any maternal feelings as this pregnancy progresses. But she also, 
I think, isn't really given space to have those maternal feelings because she's in the shittiest possible living situation. She can't imagine bringing a baby into her life. A hundred percent. Good to point out. So... In order to escape reality, Jenna dreams about making pies in her head. And this is like a runner in the film. It's very cute. She like lays out the recipe for each pie and it and she calls it something that has to do with something that's going on in her life. It's I love it. So Jenna eventually has her first doctor's appointment with her doctor and realizes that her regular doctor is on leave and that the, she's been replaced with this new person who just moved to town. It's a doctor named Dr. Pometer, and he's played by Nathan Fillion of Castle fame. And what's that show, that he, that one famous sci-fi show? Oh, um... It's, in, it's like d- a dusty planet. That's all I remember. Firefly. Thank you, Casey. Firefly. Thank you. Casey said Firefly like he knew it. Had you seen Firefly, either yeah, of you? Yeah, of course. Yeah. I saw a couple episodes... But I'm sure everybody listening knows who Nathan Fillion is because he's kind of a hunk. At first, Jenna is like, who are you? I don't like you. You're a new doctor. But then over time, you know, probably out of a a desperation, really, to escape her shitty life. And maybe because it's just this, she calls him a a cute, nervous guy. Like, she's like, why why have to be so cute and nervous? Which I thought was cute. She develops a crush on Dr. Pometer, and they eventually make out one morning when she's visiting in his office, and, you know, she sort of dreams about this kind of just to get her through the day, right? Yeah. And meanwhile, Earl eventually finds out about the baby, and he predictably reacts like an absolute serial killer, like Ugh. insane. Like, he he's like... Promise me you'll never love the baby more than me. Psycho, psycho. Yeah. So, as you can imagine, Jenna starts a full-on affair with Dr. Pometer at this point, and then they kind of dream of leaving their partners and starting a new life. And this is all happening, too, while her other uh, co-workers, the Cheryl Hines character and the Adrian Shelley character are also kind of finding love and crushes and stuff like that. So everyone's kind of got this crush energy going on. And then of course I wouldn't, I would, I would be remiss if I did not mention the star cameo of the film, Andy Griffith, who plays Joe, the owner of this pie shop and all the girls working at the shop are like, I don't want to deal with him. You take him, Jenna. Because he's a notorious crank. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, what'd you say? No, he's so mean. Yeah, a notorious crank. And um, I don't know, Jenna ends up really liking him, though. And they develop this really lovely friendship where he gives her a lot of advice about her situation and helps her out. It's kind of great. And I obviously won't kind of reveal what happens at the end of the film because I feel like it's actually like a really wonderful surprise that I feel like everybody should discover on their own. Yeah. But I just love this movie so much. It's just, it's so light and full of heart, even though it's about sad, desperate situations. Mm -hmm. It has this levity to it at the same time, which is obviously a testament to Adrian Shelley and her talent Completely. There, there are so many lines in this film that are fucking hilarious. 
and just said so quickly that you barely have a chance to laugh before she moves on to the next funny line. Like any conversation that Becky, Dawn, and Jenna are all having together is guaranteed to just level you with laughter. And it's just the the delivery is perfect because they're just talking. They're not like stopping and laughing themselves. They're just like having real conversations that made me remember what it was like to work in restaurants and like have that closeness with people. And it's just, it's just so fucking funny. Like the way that um, Becky is constantly talking about how one of her boobs is lower Uh, than the other one. And like, (laughs) it's just, just so sweet and funny the way that their friendship develops And they're trying to find ways to support her through what is really an uncertain time in her life. So I think I really appreciated seeing that as well. Like they weren't pushing her one way or the other. um, Yeah. But they were just finding ways to be supportive while going through their own hilarious love and and sex mishaps. Yeah. And that's that's ultimately like what I love about the movie is that it's these women who are kind of supporting each other. The men around them ain't shit, and they know that, and they're just trying to, you know, lift each other up. I mean, that's just such a a, a great world to be in, in a movie. And then, you know, part of this movie kind of has, like, magical moments almost. It's very, mm. very cute. And, you know, the style of it, there's kind of this, like, kind of retro style with, like, the waitress outfits, and, um, you know, Adrian Shelley is wearing these, like, cat eye-ish 50s glasses that I would have died for (laughs) back then. I used to wear vintage glasses all the time. And it was just, it's just so cute. And, you know, after this movie came out, it was obviously after the death of Adrienne Shelley. So it came out, you know, after she passed. And it became a musical on Broadway, which was very successful. And as much as there is this tragic story that's wrapped up in this film, it also is like a wonderful legacy for her. It's just like, there's a scene towards the end with her actual daughter. If you know, it's, it's her actual daughter in the film. And I don't know, it's just such a lovely, lovely movie. It'll make you want to eat all kinds of pies, not just sweet ones, but savory ones. I was like, I want a savory pie right fucking now. Uh, I I did consider making a quiche for dinner after I watched this movie. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) But I didn't have time to roll out that dough. Uh, Yeah. But I love love it. It's just, it's whimsical and delightful and deep and funny and makes me cry. And it just has like so many wonderful elements that really showcase the narrative of this of Jenna's life at, at one of her lowest moments. I think it takes real talent to be able to do that. And again, Adrian Shelley could have given us so much more. Um, yeah, but I'm so glad that we have this. I, I am too. And you know, just to shout out Carrie Russell, you know, I I didn't watch Felicity back when it was on, and I and I I haven't watched The Americans, so I. I know she's a great actress, but it's just that I'm not, I don't really have a lot of um, experience watching her work, but she's such a, she's so good in this. She's a perfect, you know, person to be Jenna. She's beautiful and sweet and, you know, just, I don't know. I just, I just loved everybody in this film. Yeah. I really did. So yeah, that's it for this week. I thought, what a, great pairing for food films. I mean, 
Yeah. Now we're going to have to make sushi and then chase it with a giant pie. I'm up for the task. Yeah. I will clear my schedule. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, if you want to email us, we are at I saw what you did pod at gmail.com. Please send us questions for the bonus episodes, of course. We also have a P.O. box if you want to send us handwritten letters. And don't forget that we are doing something new for our listener questions. Um, in addition to sending us an email, you can also now send a voicemail and we will play it on the air. It can be a question, a comment, a fart story, anything you want. Just know that if you send it in, we're assuming we can play it on the show. Make it 60 seconds or less. Okay, 60 seconds or less and record in a quiet space. All you have to do is record a voice memo on your phone and email it to I saw what you did pod at gmail.com. That is right. Also, we're on social media. We are I saw pod on Instagram and X. And uh, we also have merch. Hey, come get a B of the D shirt. Uh, get the hoodies. Get whatever you want. We are um, over at the Exactly Right shop at exactlyrightmedia.com. And we have new bonus episodes once a month, every third Thursday of the month. But our old bonus episodes are kind of repopulating the main feed once a week. So uh, every Wednesday, every, you know, every couple of weeks on Wednesdays, you'll find old bonus episodes that are no longer behind a paywall. That is right. All right. Let's talk next episode. Danielle. Yeah. One of the movies. Your movies for next week are... The Hours from 2002, and Poison Ivy from 1992. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Guess the theme. What a combo. Yeah. Well, Danielle, listen, as always, a fucking pleasure doing this podcast with you. I love it. I don't know why I go to extremes. <laughs> Darling, I don't know. Too high or too low. There ain't no in between. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs>has been an exactly right production produced by casey o'brien episode mixing and theme music by tom bryfogle artwork by garrett ross our executive producers are georgia hardstart karen kilgariff and daniel kramer you can follow us on instagram and twitter at i saw pod and you can email us at i saw what you did pod at gmail Follow I Saw What You Did on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate and review the show. And visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase I Saw What You Did merch.